Um, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to use the white Bibles in front of you. And if you need so, you can take that home with you. Uh, the title today is You've Been Weighed and Found Wanting. Now, this is kind of a, a famous chapter. Many of you might be familiar with this chapter. Uh, Rembrandt did a painting on this one. I think we even have a picture of it. It's uh, called Belshazzar's Feast. This is where the hand comes out of, you know, the thin air and writes on the wall. And so this is where we're at today. I'm not going to really spend more time on the introduction but what I want us to do is just dig into the Word. One thing we do here is we stand when we read the Word of God, so I'm going to ask you to stand. We do so because uh, the Word comes with the full authority and inspiration of God, so we do so in order to acknowledge and honor our God and Savior. This is a long passage. If you need to sit down throughout it, that is okay. Chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king of, and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams explain riddles and solve problems were found in this daniel whom the king named belshazzar now let daniel be called and he will show the interpretation then daniel was brought in before the king the king answered and said to daniel you are that daniel one of the exiles of judah whom the king my father brought from judah i have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. 
Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and who are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Pereth, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. A proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you as those who are made in your image. Give us eyes to see the truths in your word today. May your spirit work powerfully that we would understand the truth of your word. That we'd be full of conviction and boldness. Give us a passion today for those who do not know you today. God, I ask that your word would find its full effect today through, your, through the preaching of it. That God, we would be changed our hearts would be more transformed into the image of your son and that as we leave here today we would do so to glorify you to honor you and to share the gospel with others in your name jesus amen you all may be seated this is a big chapter um, kind of before we begin i just want to give you a little bit of how uh Chapters 2 through 7 are structured because it's important that we understand that. Uh, 
when we read the Bible, if we want to understand the meaning of the Bible, it's good to understand how the author put it together, how the author has intended us to understand it so that we could see what the main point is. Now, what you may not know is that Daniel is really written in two different languages. There's a Hebrew section and there's an Aramaic section. Hebrew is chapter 1, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. The Aramaic section is chapters 2 through 7. It's believed on kind of best reasoning and interpretation that the Aramaic section, 2 through 7, which is what we've been in, has kind of universal significance. It's, it's for all people. And chapters 1 and then 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 is particularly for the people of God. It's particularly how do they move forward. Now, it's all practical, but that's kind of maybe the focus of how to look at these chapters. And when we look at chapters 2 through 7, we're going to notice what we call a chiastic structure. You're not going to be quizzed later. You don't know how to know that term. Um, but I have a little chart up here, and you're going to learn chiasm real quick. Uh, so if you notice, chapter 2 and chapter 7 are going to be connected. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he has a dream of a statue with four parts. The four parts represent four kingdoms. Chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts, the beasts representing four kingdoms. Do you see the connection? Chapter 2 and 7 are connected. Chapters 3 and 6 are connected. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire in chapter 3 because of their faith. Chapter 6, Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. See the connection? It's all coming together. So the middle part of the chiasm is usually going to be the main point of the focus that the author wants us to see. Now as we see here, uh, I think my voice just cracked. Uh, as we see here, chapter 4 and chapter 5, uh, we have judgment on two kings. Chapter 4, judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, a proud, arrogant king who humbles himself, experiences salvation. Chapter 5, a proud, arrogant king who does not humble himself and thus suffers the judgment of God. So we're meant to see this. And so this is where we're coming in today. Last week we saw chapter 4, a proud, arrogant king, King Nebuchadnezzar. An ungodly man who had no problem killing people, but by God's grace was humbled and repented. Now we have another man, same boat, proud, arrogant king, but he persistently rebels and rejects God, and therefore he will suffer the judgment of God. And so as we go forward today, there's really two main points in your bulletin. Number one, all who do not repent and believe in God will suffer the judgment of God. We have to know this. All who do not repent and believe in God will suffer the judgment of God. And secondly, we the church, we have the message of hope. We have to know, we have the message of hope that this world needs. And so, as we go through, we're going to unpack this. We're going to just kind of walk through uh, chapter 5. We'll make comments as we go. We begin with the arrogance of the king. It doesn't tell us in the very beginning, but we know from the, begin from the end of the chapter, there's a Persian army outside the walls at this moment. And they're figuring out a way to actually infiltrate these walls. But what we see is that the king is clearly not worried about this, this Persian army, this invasion. He and a thousand other nobles, they're just partying up. They're drinking wine, drinking their beer, having an amazing party. They are choosing not to believe that there is a war that is going to cost them their lives. They're saying, look, we don't want to believe in that. We're going to act like that's not real. We're just going to party and do what we want to do. And so what King Belshazzar, once they begin to get drunk, he says, hey, let's go 
and get the silver and gold vessels that King Neb, my father. Now, just so you know, when it says my father, he's really like my great, 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 great grandfather He's um, uh, to King Belshazzar. And he says, let's bring in the temple, let's bring in the vessels that were in the temple in Jerusalem. Because it was believed when King Nebuchadnezzar overcame Jerusalem, common thought was, well, obviously the gods of Babylon, Marduk and Bel, have clearly overcome Yahweh, the God of Jerusalem. But if you've been with us, you know that's not the case. In fact, in chapter 1, we're told in the very beginning of this book that it's not because of Babylon's strength or anything else that they won, but God gave Jerusalem into the hands of Babylon. And let's not think that here that Belshazzar doesn't know what he's doing. In verses 2 and 3, clearly refers to the vessels that come from the temple in Jerusalem. Um, Verse 3, from the house of God in Jerusalem. And notice in verse 4, what they're planning on doing. They worship their gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone, as they drink from the silver and gold cups that have been dedicated to the God of Israel. So do you see kind of the irony here? These vessels have been created for the purpose of worshiping the Creator, Belshazzar is now going to use them for the purpose of worshiping creation. I'm going to take these things that ought to be used for the worship of God, and I'm going to worship gold and silver and iron and wood and stone. What Belshazzar and all the nobles are doing is actually what characterizes all of humanity. This is really what we see all throughout Scripture, is that as humanity, because of sin, we continually reject the creator and we worship creation in fact many of you know romans 1 romans 1 paul actually tells us why god's wrath his judgment is against us and it's because we've exchanged the truth of god the creator for a lie we worship creation instead let me read romans 1 24 and 25 it says therefore god gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever amen because of sin all of us humanity this is what characterizes humanity worships creation rather than God and so the king took which that was to be used for the worship of God worshiped creation now we i'm going to venture to say we don't probably have gold or silver or wood or stone or anything else in our houses that we're falling down before and worshiping if you do we can talk later be really interesting conversation um but we nonetheless we worship see in the bible it's never if we worship it's it's who are we worshiping we are made to worship we worship no matter what it's just who or what are we worshiping and think about it There's tons of proof that we love to worship, right? Have you ever noticed how many religions are out there? There's thousands of religions. There's religions that will worship the moon and the sun and the stars and the planets. There's religions like pantheism that will say everything is God. The chair is God. The pulpit is God. My phone is God. Everything is God. He's everywhere. There's other forms of religion that will have more of a deistic approach, which there's a God out there, and he's big, and he's powerful, but he's out there We don't really know him. It's kind of a distant God. There's religions like Mormonism where we actually become gods. There's there's 
religions like Buddhism where we actually get absorbed into the very energy of the life source. There's uh, religions like uh, Hinduism where we're reincarnated, and the goal is not reincarnation, just so you know. They don't want to be reincarnated. Reincarnation is like the second shot, third shot, fourth shot, fifth shot to get it right. And once you get it right, you're actually then absorbed into some higher being. There are endless possibilities. Atheism itself is a religion. It is a belief set based upon who they believe God is. They simply just say there is no God. But it's nonetheless a religion that determines how they will live. We love to worship. Don't, don't ever think that we don't worship. There are tons of religions, and they seem to sprout up all the time. Have you noticed that? There's new religions and new religions. We worship our minds and our intellect. There's many proofs about that, but uh, there are many people who believe that this world was not designed and created by God, but rather that we are merely the accidental result of a collision of atoms that occurred millions of years ago, or billions of years ago, and therefore, if that is the case, then there's no purpose, there's no meaning for us. And they will say, we don't want to believe in God. We don't want to believe that there's any God, any creator, any divine being. We would rather say that with all the intentionality and all the things that we see, it's just random chaos. There are many people who believe that, and they do so because they say, if I can't see it, if I can't smell it, if I can't taste it, then it just simply cannot exist. So we, we worship our minds and our intellect. We worship our jobs, our money, our possessions. Think about how hard we work. We work hard, right? And, and there are many people who work so hard that they will say things like, I know I'm not with my family very much, but I work very, very hard. And I do it all for my family, which I think that's a lie we tell ourselves because I think oftentimes what we're really after is uh, the possessions that then we can get, the prestige that we get either with our family, them knowing, oh, my husband just works so hard, our dad works so hard, or the prestige we get at our jobs. We worship sex and lust. We worship, uh, we want, men will watch porn, they will masturbate, they'll have sexual fantasies. Uh, men will have fantasies that all the women they meet actually want to undress them and make love to them. Just so you know, women, there are weird things that go through guys' heads, but those are fantasies that men have. And some of you are still thinking, he said masturbate in church? It's kind of weird. If we don't talk about it here, where do we talk about it? Um... Some of you are like, we don't need to talk about it here. Uh, women, they have fantasies too, though, right? They're a little different at times. They will dream of men that will perfectly meet their needs, make them feel valued, and emotionally connect with them at all levels. And this is what we say. We'll say, we deserve this. This is what I should have. I need a husband like this, or I need a wife like this. I need someone who will do this. And what we're continually saying is, I think all of creation should bow down to me and meet my needs and my desires. We worship our bodies. We want to look certain ways, so we'll kill ourselves at the gym. We'll have surgeries to reform and reconstruct our bodies. Now, I love going to the gym. I'm not saying anything bad about the gym. Uh, last year was kind of my, I slacked off a lot last year. You know, just, there's really no other reason. I just didn't go. Um, this year, it's like five days a week. I'm mostly there. I like it. Um, but listen, Good things become bad things when they become ruling things, meaning when we become totally focused on how does my body look and, and how does it match up with what society should look or, um, or our work or our sex or how we connect with our spouse or our kids, when any of those things become the dominant focus of 
our life, those good things can also become bad things because we stop worshiping the creator and we're worshiping creation. We also worship um, our respect and admiration. This is where, this is me here, this is a, a big one for me. I mean, think about it. What do we get angry at? Think about it. Last time you got angry, what did you get angry about? Don't we get angry when people don't recognize us, when they don't respect us, when they don't treat us the way we actually think we deserve? Think about it. Last time you got cut off, what did you do? Like, I found so many times we get cut off, and all of a sudden, we get so extremely upset when we're in the vehicle. Someone just cuts us off. They don't see us. And so what have we been? We've been waving certain fingers at them, start yelling, hitting the dash. We follow them. We honk, flash the lights. Now, why do we do that? How did you not see me? How did you not see me? Yeah, now, if we cut someone off, it was an accident. Whoa, hey, you know, I just, it was a bad choice. I know I shouldn't have pulled out so quick. We all make mistakes. You cut me off. How did you not see me? Because I'm the center of the universe, and above everyone on the road, you need to recognize me. And when I drive, or when I speak, or when I do something, think about how we get upset. I hope you see, like, we're all guilty of worshiping creation rather than creator. So there's a danger when we read God's word and we come to a text like this, narrative, so a story form, sometimes it's kind of hard for us to connect. And what we do, we distance ourselves sometimes. And we'll say, man, that Belshazzar guy, that guy screwed up. Man, he should have repented like King Now I can't believe there's stupid people like that in this world. He clearly saw his great-great-great-grandfather. Like, why didn't he heard the stories he knew? An idiot. Like, we distance ourselves from the text rather than say, you know what? I am that guy. And apart from God's grace, we are all Belshazzar. Do you realize that? Apart from God's grace, we are Belshazzar. We're proud. We're arrogant. And we worship creation rather than the creator. We are Belshazzar. We can't, when we come to the text, we must not distance ourselves. We must not say, that guy. The moment we do that, there's the pride building up. But we want to come and say, God, Help me to understand the truths of your word. Let's keep going in the story. Verse 5, we see a hand appears. It writes on the wall. Uh, verse 6, we're told the king's limbs give way. His knees knock together. Just so you know, limbs giving way, that's a really polite way of saying he just pooped his pants. That's a really polite, nice way of saying that. So he needs to go to the restroom now, change himself. What happens next? Verse 7, he comes out of the restroom. King says, I will greatly reward anyone who can interpret this writing. I'll, I'll give you gold. I'll give you purple. I'll give you everything you want. Give you third in command. So what happens? He calls the wise men, and what do they do? They fail, right? Now, this is not the first time. Chapter 2, chapter 4, now chapter 5, wise men have been called before a king. Wise men repeatedly fail to understand spiritual truths. You see that? Worldly wisdom is not able to understand spiritual truth. That's what we see all throughout Daniel. Without spiritual understanding that comes from the Spirit of God, we cannot understand the spiritual truth. This is what we would call the futility of human wisdom. There is a futility of human wisdom. Now you might say, 
well, wait a minute, we can be smart, though. We know lots of things, and it's true. Like, we know how gravity works. We understand what some of us do, and we just know things fall. Uh, we know how our bodies work. We understand how to maybe build a shed, cook a meal, do various things. We understand how leadership principles, and we can understand good mom techniques, good dad techniques. But worldly wisdom is futile in understanding who God is and how we are to live as his people. Only with biblical wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God are we able to understand spiritual things. Are we able to understand really anything in this life? Think about it. Apart from God, how do we answer the question, why are we here? What do we live for? What is the meaning of life? Why do we parent? Why are there husbands? Why are there fathers? Aren't all fathers merely to picture the father? Aren't all husbands to merely picture Christ as husband of the church? Aren't all family units meant to picture Christ and how we're adopted into the family of God? You will understand truly nothing, the true meaning of things, apart from the wisdom of God that comes from the Spirit of God. In fact, let me just read one verse just to illustrate this. 1 Corinthians two, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. It says the natural person, which that just means the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he does not understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The point? Unbelievers cannot understand the truths of God's Word apart from the grace and the Spirit of God. And so, the wise men are not able to answer the question. And let me drive home this point just slightly more. So I meet with a guy uh, regularly, and we've been going through the book of Mark. And we go through the book of Mark, we read through it, we ask questions, and one time, a couple weeks ago, actually several times now, he said, I don't get it. Now, just so you know, when you're meeting with a guy, you're reading the Bible, and he says, I don't get it, good things are about to happen. All right? That's a good statement. So this is what he says. How can these people see Jesus heal, cast out demons, make the lame to walk, raise the dead, and still not believe in him. Like, that's stupid. Like, clearly this guy has some massive power here. Regardless of who they actually might think he is, clearly they should begin believing him, or at least understand who he is. But continually we see throughout the book of Mark, these Pharisees and these scribes, they keep rejecting Jesus, rejecting Jesus. In fact, incredible story, John 11, we see that Jesus raises Lazarus, or John 10, I think it's 11, raises Lazarus, Right after he raises ladders, you know what we read? The Pharisees and scribes get together. Hey, let's kill Jesus. He just overcame death. Like, that's what we see in Scripture. Now, how is it that people can see Jesus do these amazing things? Walk on water, cast out demons, make the lame to walk, make the blind to see, raise the dead, and still not believe. It's because of sin. It's because sin causes us to reject the truth of God as our creator, and we would rather worship creation. We would rather worship anything other than God. Sin makes us think that the lies we believe are true, and the truth is actually a lie. Does that make sense? That's what sin does. In fact, I was talking actually with Chris Gorman earlier, and he gave me this amazing quote, which you had no idea how that perfectly played into this sermon. So I have this quote from Augustine. It should be up on the screen. Now think about this. Just, just track through this. 
People have such a love for truth that when they happen to love something else, they want it to be the truth. And because they do not wish to be proven wrong, they refuse to be shown their mistake. And so they end up hating the truth for the sake of the object which they came to love instead of the truth. You see it? We want to know truth. We love truth. Sin makes us think that lies are true. And so we, we defend these lies and, and we, we do everything we can to support them because we want them to be true. And when the truth comes, we say, no, that can't be true. That must be the lie. And that's what we see Belshazzar. He knows the truth. He's seen King Nebuchadnezzar. He knows all about the stories. And he says, that's not true. I would rather worship my gold and my silver and my stones and all these gods that I can see and I can taste and I can touch. I do not want to worship a most high God. And so because of sin, we arrogantly reject God and believe a lie. Um, this is also, just a side note, as Christians, this is why it's hard for us to repent. Do you know that? Like, I don't want to believe I was wrong. I want to believe that whatever I did was true, was right. And you tell me it's wrong. No, you're wrong, right? Isn't that what we say? Like, anyone comes at us and like, hey, you did something wrong. No, I didn't. You're wrong. Like, we defend our habits because we want to be true. We struggle with this, even as Christians. So back to the story. The queen informs the king. There's a man named Daniel who is able to interpret the writing on the wall. You see irony here? There's actually chapters filled with irony. Um, so King Belshazzar says, hey, let's take the vessels from Jerusalem made to worship the Most High God. Let's worship creation. Writing comes on the wall. Nobody can understand it. Hey, let's get the guy from Jerusalem that worships the Most High God to come tell us what the writing says. Do you see the irony? It's pretty thick. Daniel shows up. The king says, um, the king, uh, now Daniel is going to uh, explain the judgment that is going to come on the king. So we're going to turn to the judgment that comes to the king. The first, king says, look, I'll give you all these gifts. And Daniel says, nope, I don't want them. And again, I have to take every shot I can. The studies that talk, and there's tons of them. When you read studies, when you read sermons, when you read books, so many of them are about there to be the Daniel. Daniel's the main person. We have to be like Daniel. Let's all come and be like Daniel. And so most of them at this point will say something like, you see Daniel? So when the world offers us things, we must always say no to things. And we want to be like Daniel. But that's not the point, right? What's the point? We have a king whose kingdom is failing, is failing and falling away, offering treasures. Why do I want treasures from a kingdom that will not last? It's not about being Daniel. It's about seeing things as Daniel sees them. Because about 700 years later, we have Jesus enters the scene. Satan takes him out into the wilderness where they have a little conversation. Satan says, hey, why don't you bow down before me? I'll give you everything. And, Satan, and Jesus says, I'm establishing my kingdom that's going to grow and destroy your kingdom. Why would I want anything that you have to offer? Your kingdom will not last. And so it's not about not liking things in the world. Look, money is good, cars are good, houses are good. Those are not bad things. It's good to work hard, get a raise, like, do those things. But we don't treasure those things because they're all going to pass away. It's good to have them in the proper perspective of where they fit. But they must not become controlling things or ruling things. 
Because the moment they do, we begin worshiping them instead of the creator. So Daniel says, no, I don't want your stuff, but let me tell you an interpretation anyway. And then beginning in verse 18, he provides the king with a history lesson. And so he says, hey, remember your dad, King Nebuchadnezzar. He was a great king, full of pride, full of arrogance. Anyone he wanted to kill, he killed. Anyone he wanted to keep alive, he kept alive. And then we read, but God took all of that away and humbled him. And then notice verse 21. Until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it. He says, look, your, your, unc- your great-grandfather, he, he's a jerk. He's completely arrogant, totally rejected God. But God humbled him. And then Nebuchadnezzar repented, and he humbled himself and glorified God. Verse 22, here's the point. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You get it? You've seen this. Like you knew this was going to happen. Verse 23, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house and have been brought in before you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and who are all your ways you have not honored. Here's the point. King Neb, super arrogant guy, humbles and comes to salvation in God. King Belshazzar, super arrogant guy, refuses to humble himself, persists in rebellion, and now suffers the judgment of God. And so Daniel interprets the word. We got mene, which means numbered or, or counted, tekel, which is weighed, parson, divided. And Daniel gives us the interpretation. He says, your days have been numbered. You've been weighed and found wanting. Your kingdom's now going to the Medes and Persians. And you might say, well, did it come true? Yeah, it did, just like two verses later. And the king is dead, and Darius, who most likely is King Cyrus, comes, and he is now ruling. And we can't miss, we are like Belshazzar. So we all deserve this judgment. This is how we are born. We are born like Belshazzar. We are born arrogant. We are born prideful. We are born in rebellion. We are born resisting God. We are Belshazzar. This is how we are born. I think I've said that enough. This is how we are born. Everyone understand? We are born like Belshazzar, but this is also why Jesus was born. Because we are born like Belshazzar. So Jesus comes, and Jesus comes that he would come as the son of man and that he would live a perfect life and that one day he would go to a cross and on that cross he would die and he, what we call it he would die as our substitute meaning he's going to stand in our place and he's going to be a sacrifice which means he will die he's not just going to get hurt he will die and so jesus comes to stand as our substitute as a sacrifice and as a propitious offering what does propitiation mean Wrath, wrath absorber, sin absorber. I love that. Just so you know, that's like if you know that truth, like you, you've got a good handle on the gospel. Like a good handle on the gospel. So Jesus comes as the wrath absorber. Why is that important? Because we are sinful and finite. How long does it take us to absorb the wrath of God? Well, hell's eternity. That's how long. Never, because we can't. 
And so Jesus comes, so on the, on the cross, he would actually drink the cup of God's wrath so that all who believe in him would be saved by grace through faith in Jesus and be forgiven, be adopted, and be brought into the family of God. Listen to Galatians 3.13. It's a good summary of this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus comes, we're under curse, he stands as our substitute, as our sacrifice, as a propitious sacrifice to absorb the wrath of God. So he would take the wrath, and we, by grace, through faith in Jesus, we'd be forgiven. So that we could be adopted into God's family. But everyone who rejects Jesus, who rejects the substitute, who rejects the one who can stand as their propitious offering, well, they still must atone for that wrath, for their sin. Therefore, they will suffer the wrath of God for eternity. Now, a lot of people, when they read the Bible, they say, man, that Old Testament God, he's, he's mean. But guess what? In the New Testament, we come across a lot of judgment also. Jesus talks a lot about judgment. Peter talks a lot about judgment. Paul talks about judgment. John, the apostle, writes a lot about judgment. In fact, I want to read one of the most chilling and sobering passages in all of Scripture. This comes from Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15. So this is John, and he, he wants us to understand the judgment of God. So he has a vision. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's two deaths. Death number one, we're all probably going to suffer. Death, old age, disease, illness. We all suffer that one. That's one that all of humanity will encounter. But there's a second death. And this is the one that truly Jesus rescues us from, the second death. If we have not believed in Jesus, who stands as our propitious sacrifice, then we have to still face God and atone for our sins. And the only way we do that is through the lake of fire. Now just think about the imagery that John wants. He's given a vision, and the only way he can describe it is a lake of fire, waves of fire. It, it's a lake where, where those who have rejected Christ will, will be in for eternity where their skin will continually be burned, where there will be continual gnashing of teeth, where there will be continual anguishing. And, and unlike here, like if we're caught in a fire that's so intense we die, the fire, the, the pain ends, right? This is a pain that will never end. It's an eternal dying and it's eternal anguishing. This is how John describes this vision. We must understand, this is the message of the world, that all who do not believe in Jesus, there is a judgment. There is a judgment that awaits. But this is where we come, but the mission of the church, 
Jesus commissioned the church. As, as Rich so eloquently said in Matthew 28, we've been commissioned. Jesus, in all of his authority, says, I command you to go into all the nations, baptizing and teaching people about me, that they would come to know me and live for me. And he says, I will be with you for all of eternity. The message, of the message to the world is there is a judgment, but the good news is the Creator has sent His Son, Jesus, to come into the world so we have hope. And now we have the joy of going and sharing this gospel. Just as we received it by grace, we didn't, we didn't become Christians because we're rich, because of where we live, or anything else. We simply received it by grace. Now we have the joy of going and telling it to other people so that by grace, we too, they too might live. But this is where we struggle. We sometimes play the comparison game and say, well, I'm not very good at sharing the gospel. That guy's a lot better than me. Like probably the Soren guy comes, well, he's definitely more gifted than me. Maybe he should do it. Or, okay, I understand that we're all to share the gospel. I don't really want to say the wrong, the wrong thing, so I just won't do it. And we continually make excuses for why we should not be obedient to the gospel. We need to be careful here. Jesus comes in all of his authority and says, go make disciples. If we persist in our rebellion to share the gospel, there's a warning there. We need to wrestle with that. How can we persist in rebellion against God and be his child? We've been given the spirit of God so that in great joy, we would go out and share the gospel. Now, I don't mean, that, mean to say that's easy. That's why we still need to equip. That's why we're bringing people like Soren to encourage us, to help us understand and know how to be more effective doing it. But listen, you've been adopted into the family of God. You've been given every spiritual blessing that there is. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. You literally have God inside of you. Not so you answer all the questions right. Not so that you give the perfect evangelism uh, and gospel message every time. But so that you are equipped by the power of God to be obedient and leave all the results up to God. We are not commanded to save anyone. Do you know that? Like, that takes all the load of the pressure off, right? You don't actually have to save anyone. We just have to share about the one who does save. And just as we are saved by God's grace, we pray, God, Open eyes. Help them to understand the truth. So uh, as I was reading in Mark, we just throw the gospel out like seed. We just throw it everywhere. We're almost flippant with it. Everywhere we are, we just throw the gospel. Say, God's going to give growth. God's going to give growth. I don't know where he's going to do it, how he's going to do it, but he's going to give growth. So we look for opportunities in every conversation that we can to give the gospel. Robert Frost wrote a poem, The Bearer of Evil Tidings. I think a lot of us, we don't like to give the gospel because we know at some point we have to say someone is, is sinful and under the judgment of God. And that's, that's hard, right? You get that, your neighbor's at your house, good cookies, thanks, you're going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. Like that's hard to make that transition, right? But we have to let them know what the bad news is. This is what Robert Frost, this is his poem. The bearer of evil tidings, when he was halfway there, remembered that evil tidings were a dangerous thing to bear. So when he came to the parting, where one road led to the throne, and one went off to the mountains and into the wild unknown, he took the one to the mountains. He ran through the valley of Kashmir. He ran through the road of Dindrums till he came to the land of Pamir. As for his evil tidings, Belshazzar's overthrow, why hurry to tell Belshazzar what soon enough he would know? 
But it's, it's not a bad thing to tell people they're sinful. It's a, it's, a, it's a hard thing, but it's the most loving thing that we can do is let people know where they stand with God and how they can come and experience the grace of God. I love cell phones. Um, I just want you to think real quick, and we're going to pray. I want you to think about friends, about family members, about coworkers that are unbelievers in your life. Just to think, just get, get their face in your head. Based upon Scripture, if they don't believe in Jesus, where do they go if they're to die right now? Just get that. Like, where do they go if they're to die right now? The truth of Scripture. Not what we think, not what we hope is true. The truth of Scripture. You go to the lake of fire. Do you want to know why you live in the house you do next to the unbeliever you do? Do you want to know why you work next to the unbeliever in the next cubicle or the next office? Do you want to know why you're in those places? Do you want to know why moms, you're in that moms group where, where some unbelieving women are there that you hang out with every week or once a month? Do you know why you're there? It's to share the gospel. You are the means in which these people will come to know Christ. You are the means which God has chosen that the gospel would go forth. We say, God, save my, un- my unbelieving neighbor. Great, the prayer's already been answered. You're there. Do you realize that you've, you're there? He's already provided everything they need. You, you have the message of hope. They have ears. They can hear it. You can give it to them. And then we trust God. We just pray and we trust God that by giving of the gospel, he will save. Because you know what? Our God loves to save. Do you know that? Do you ever doubt that? Look at the cross. The cross testifies our God loves to save. He loves so much that he sent his son to die on a cross. This is why we're going to Lebanon. So we go and tell people who have never heard the gospel, and if they don't hear it and they don't believe, then they will go to hell. We go to Lebanon. We go to different places in the world to share the gospel. Now, you might actually be thinking right now, wait a minute. There's people in other parts of the world who have never heard the gospel, and God would send them to hell? Like, how is that fair? They're innocent. They haven't even heard the gospel. But what does scripture tell us? Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, the question is asked wrong from the beginning. There's no innocent people. We're all guilty. We say, well, how are these people who haven't heard the gospel, how are they supposed to know? It's by us going. It's by the church going to all nations, in all languages, in all tribes, in all places, sharing the gospel, fully aware that our God saves and loves to save, and we share the gospel. And we will do so until the moment he returns, until the moment we die. Because there's no greater news. The reason we work men, the reason we work, it's not necessarily to make money. That's like second. The number one reason is to share the gospel and to give glory to God. That's why we work. That's why God places us in all the places that he does in society. So wherever you're at right now, think of the context and all the different contexts that you exist. You have been divinely placed there by God to share the gospel so that people would hear the hope of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in him and not experience the lake of fire, but experience the arms of the Father. So we're going to pray now. 
Um, and I'm going to ask the men to come forward. And we're going to take communion, which celebrates the fact that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is our propitious substitutionary sacrifice. He stands in our place, absorbing the wrath so we can be saved. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. And God, you are good. You are a good, holy, righteous God. And Lord, I pray. That I know that we probably have questions. I know there's thoughts that are swarming in our head. But the clear truth is, all who do not know you will suffer judgment. We who have been saved by the grace of your Son have the message of hope. God, you are the most glorious God. You are beautiful in every way. God, you have given us your spirit that we would now go into the world. God, fill us with joy. Fill us with confidence. Fill us with boldness. That we would engage those around us. That we would look to evangelize and share the gospel. That people would know you. Lord, we love you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.